Right, okay, so the question that has been put for tonight um, is does the New Testament deal with the issue of believers persecuting other believers? So do we ever see in the New Testament anger, lies, slander and hatred when it's believer against believer? Alright, so we know that unbelievers will persecute believers but does the Bible allow for, if you see what I mean, the thing that believers might do to believers. Um, Also, Paul, in his ministry, um, did he experience having other believers trying to destroy him and trying to stop him doing what God had called him to do? So, obviously, we know that there were times when unbelievers would come against Paul, obviously, and try to stop him, but were there times when believers would be combating Paul trying to close him down do him damage or whatever or or whatever so that's the question that we're going to address tonight now let's start with Matthew 5 and let's um, just establish read verse 11 to 12 that certainly (coughs) at bare minimum Believers ought to expect to be persecuted. We're really following the Lord. This is Jesus speaking. Matthew 5, 11 and 12. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So there we see what you might call the blessedness of persecution. Whenever a believer is genuinely going through a hard time at the hands of other people who are sinning against them, whenever that happens, it is a blessed position to be in. But the question we're going to ask is, does the New Testament say anything concerning whether or not it might actually be Christians who are so sinning against other Christians? So in order to to answer that, go to the letter of James. And we're going to be looking at warnings that the Bible gives us. Now, um, I would never, you will never hear me warning anyone against the dangers of alien abduction. (laughs) And for a very simple reason, I don't believe in aliens. So, whenever it comes to warning people, by definition, you don't warn people about things that can't happen. You see what I mean? So, whenever we look in the Bible at warnings, which by definition, because they're in letters written to believers, whenever we see warnings written to believers, then it's obvious that believers are being warned about something that could well happen if they're not careful. Alright. So, in, in the letter of James, we're going to start in chapter 1. And um, 
And let's just, just read, uh, we'll start off it in verse 19. <coughs> We're going to read to verse 22 and then verse 26. Now, listen to this. <coughs> These are warnings, and they're warnings to you, and they are warnings to me. So, whatever we hear see James warning about, it could happen. My brothers... Take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God requires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth. What's the context here? Anger. That's moral filth. He's not talking about sexual things here. That's moral filth. Sinful anger against people. And humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. And he's not talking there about getting saved in the sense of come to Jesus and be saved from going to labour fire. This is talking about that's how we get saved, delivered from this sin. Except the word planted in you. If we let God's word take root in us, and if we live in obedience to it, we will be saved from committing the sins he's here warning against. Okay. And he goes on, he says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, do what it says. So if he's writing against the danger of becoming angry, then that can only mean one thing. We can get angry. We can do that. And there's a warning here that we mustn't. Go down now to verse 26. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Now go to chapter 3. And I'm building a picture here, so bear with me. We're going to read uh, quite a bit. Starting verse 1. Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they're so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set <coughs> on fire by a small spark. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Now, hell, that's Gehenna. It's the Greek word for Gehenna, the lake of fire. All, right. All kinds of birds 
reptiles and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man. But no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father and with it we curse men. Now notice the we here. This is believers. He's warning believers about being like this. He's saying do not be like this. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursings. My brothers, this should not be so. Can both fresh and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. So this, when we live out of our sinful nature, irrespective of the fact we're Christians, this is what's going to come out. Not fresh spring water, but pure poison. Now, let's keep moving on. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbour bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. <clears throat> Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. Now listen to this. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Who's the you? He's writing to believers. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something but don't get it. You kill and covet but you cannot have what you want. Now, what I want you to see is what he says there. You kill. Now, that is quite specifically the Greek word for murder. It's phineu. It's not the word for kill. It's the word for murder. And here is a reference that James makes actually making a statement that he was aware that murder had gone on amongst believers. Now, if you look at most of the commentaries, you'll, you'll find that they'll say that this is like dramatic license. It, it's kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's using something like murder just to describe the intensity of feelings that were going on. But in actual fact, I'm going to show you later 
that there's a, a period of Christian history where we can ascertain beyond any shadow of a doubt that Christians murdered other Christians. This, this isn't literary effect, what James is saying here. He's used the word for murder. He is obviously aware that he's writing to Christians among whom murder has gone on. Now, bearing that in mind, alright, now this is heavy duty stuff. I have never ever heard anyone except me teach stuff like this, alright? Never. Go now to 1 John. 1 John. And remember, we're reading warnings to Christians. By definition, to Christians. Now, <clears throat> 1 John chapter 2, we'll start with verse 3 and 4. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Now go to verse 9 and 11. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Now, get this, hates his brother. Well, if, if, if here's a person and here's another person and they're brothers, what does that mean? They're both believers. The New Testament only uses the word brothers of believers. So here he's saying, look, if you say you know God, um, you know, but, but, but you don't do what he says, you don't obey his commands, you're a liar, the truth is not in you. Now, when it talks about if we say we know him, it's not meaning here, do you know Jesus, as in have you been saved, are you a believer? It's talking about existential knowing in the here and now. Do you see what I mean? If I hate my brother, I'm not loving God. Do you see what I mean? It's not a question of whether I ever have loved God or whether I'm a Christian. It's saying that so long as you are hating, you're not knowing God because you're out of fellowship. But here's the point. It is definitely talking about Christians if you hate your brother. And so what have we got here? John, the apostle, is perfectly aware that Christians can hate one another. It is perfectly possible for Christians to have hatred in their hearts against other Christians, against their brothers and sisters. Now, go to chapter 3. Still one John. Let's read this. Now remember what we've just read in James about murder. Alright? Verse 11. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Don't be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Cain hated his brother and so murdered him because his brothers, now, now this is physical brothers, alright, you know, sons of Adam and Eve, but Cain hated Abel 
Because Abel was righteous in an area that showed Cain to be unrighteous. Unrighteous Cain would not repent, so he murdered the source of his conviction of sin. Do you see what I mean? So he goes on. Do not be surprised, brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother, again, his brother, this is Christians, hates, hatred, Christian hating Christian. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Now, do you remember what Jesus said? He says, look, you might not have actually physically murdered someone, but if you hate them, that's murder in God's eyes. Now, here's the thing to remember. An awful lot of murders don't take place simply because the person with the murderous feelings knows he can't get away with it. But what when you can get away with it? See? This fine line between hatred and actually being a murderer. But here's the point. Christians can hate Christians. As far as God concerned, that is murderous. Right. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. So what he's saying is, come on. How can it be that Christians are actually living like non-Christians? And the whole point of this is, it is absolute deception. You are kidding yourself. And of course, one of the things that he said earlier on was that, uh, back, back to chapter 1, verse 11, whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. So one of the characteristics of any Christian who has hatred in his heart towards others, be they non-Christians or Christians. But the point is, when you've got a Christian with hatred in their hearts, could equally be against Christians as against non-Christians. But here's the point. The Bible says they're totally deceived. They're in the darkness. They do not know where they're going. Can you see? They're so out of fellowship with God but because of this deception, they are totally deceived spiritually. And this is why um, one thing that you can see, you know, I mean, when, when, when one has observed Christians who have got into unrepentant sin and then really ended up seriously out of fellowship, we, we've seen it ourselves. That, that, that the more out of fellowship they are, the more spiritual they become. This is the spiritual deception working in them. So to the point, they can actually end up believing that the person they're hating, that that's God leading them to do that. You see, because they're in the darkness, they're completely deceived. All right. So we're seeing here Christians, whether they carry it out or not, Christians can have murder in their hearts towards others, just like unbelievers can. The whole point is it's a total scandal. And what we're seeing here is these are passages in the Bible written <coughs> warning us so we never get into that state. But the mere fact that Christians can get into that state means that indeed Christians do get into that state. 
And of course our responsibility is to make sure that we never do. Do you see the point? But it is quite possible and it happens. Go to Hebrews 12. Hebrews chapter 12. And of course this is the the great kind of child training chapter when the writer is lightening our Christian walk to, you know, God child training us, you know, we're, we're his children. So Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 and 15. Make every effort... Could someone just get me a drink of water? I'm uh, getting a bit croaky here. Thanks, Robert. Bless you. <clears throat> Make every effort to live in peace with all men. Right? So there's a, a peacemaking attitude in your own heart. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Because again, if you have antagonism in your heart towards other people, you're out of fellowship with God. And if you're out of fellowship with God, you're in the darkness. You see what I mean? You, you're not seeing the Lord. You're not being led of the Lord. You know, you can kid yourself all you like. I could kid myself all I like. But it's not the Lord I'm seeing. It's purely, you know, my, my own sinfulness. Now get this bit. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Now, can you see the point there? <coughs> Again, a warning to Christians that... Oh, lovely, thanks. Mm-hmm. That... If bitterness ever appears in our heart, a little root, alright? If we don't honestly, if we're not honest about that, if we don't repent of that, then that root will grow into a plant. So the bitterness in your heart grows. And what does it do? It defiles the many. Because bitterness always has a target. Now, if that target is a person, another Christian, the way it defiles the many is that when you have a wrong relationship towards someone, you need to get people on your side against them. You see the point? And this is where the bitterness spreads. Because you start pulling people in to being your gang against whoever it is you're bitter about or towards. And of course, what God is saying here, the problem is your bitterness. It's not the other person. They may or may not be right, wrong or indifferent. That's not the point. The point is the bitterness will spread to others. Um, and when that happens, that's obviously when, you know, th- this is where you get believers who are divided off against each other because you've got people you know, slandering others and trying to get people on their side to justify them in how they feel about that other person. Because when you get into this state, you don't admit that you're bitter. You don't admit that it's your resentment. You don't admit that it's hatred. It's it's God using you to protect others from that dreadful person or those dreadful people. That's forever how it works. Now let's see the underlying principle, because there is a spiritual principle working here. Go to Romans 8, chapter 17. Uh, Romans 8, verse 17. <coughs> Just going to read a string of verses. We've done a study specifically on this that's in, in, in the Tate catalogue, but 
Romans 8 verse 17 and Paul says if we are children then we are heirs heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ if indeed we share in his sufferings now go to 2 Corinthians 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 5 share in his sufferings 2 Corinthians 1 verse 5 for just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. There you've got it again. The sufferings of Christ flowing into our lives. Go to Philippians. So this sharing the sufferings of Jesus. Hmm, interesting. Philippians 3 verse 10. <clears throat> I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. So here we have the Bible referring to the fact that part of our discipleship is going to entail the experience of sharing in Jesus' sufferings. Hmm. So what's all that about go to Hebrews chapter 5 I'm doing this real quick but out of the talk in the uh, catalogue goes into it in great detail so Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7 to 9 so what are, what are these sufferings of Jesus that we can share in I mean Jesus suffered and died on the cross we, we can't share in that can we well Hebrews 5 start at verse 7 during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect and the perfect there is referring to maturity, completeness. He became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. So this is interesting. We normally think the sufferings of Jesus, the passion of, of Christ, and we think of the suffering on the cross. And indeed, that was Jesus' suffering. But here, we have reference to suffering that Jesus went through to prepare him for his ministry. So by definition, this isn't his sufferings on the cross. This is suffering that brought him to the point where he could embark on his public ministry and eventually culminate in his death on the cross. So there were sufferings that prepared Jesus for his ministry. So therefore, what were those sufferings? They're, they're not physical because there's no record of Jesus suffering physically until the cross, if you see what I mean. So what is, is this suffering? What was this suffering of Jesus that prepared him, made him ready for the work that he was called to? Well, the suffering of Jesus. Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. Yes, I reckon that's the place to go. So go to Isaiah 53 and see if we can get a definition of this suffering of Jesus that we are called to share in. 
Isaiah 53, verse 3. Now listen to this. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. What we've got here, and this is also true, obviously, of Jesus' death on the cross. Unlike us, Jesus never suffered because of his own sins, because he was the sinless Son of God. But Jesus suffered for other people's sins. I mean, yeah, on the cross, taking the sin of the world upon himself. What I'm talking about here is that Jesus' life so convicted people of sin that they hated him. And rather than bowing down before him and believing in him, they hated him and they stitched him up. They called him every untrue and vile thing under the sun. They treated him as if he was the worst of sinners rather than the only sinless human being who had ever lived. God himself having become a man. So can you see, this was Jesus suffering because of the sins of others that they wouldn't repent of. But because Jesus was what who was convicting of that sin, it was him they turned against in order to try and justify themselves. So the principle is exactly the same for us. If we live a righteous and holy life and live in repentance of sin where we fail, all right, the effect of that is there are going to be times when you become a source of conviction of sin in the lives of others, be they unbelievers or believers. But if you become a source of conviction of sin in other people that they are not willing to be honest about, you see the point? What are they going to do? Well, what did the Pharisees do? There was Jesus, who, who the effect of everything he was doing and teaching was he was showing them up to be sinners. Well, the Pharisees were not about to admit they were sinners. So, therefore, what did they do? They tried to stitch Jesus up so no one would take him seriously. See the point? So, the rumour campaigns, the false accusations. It's the principle of, if you don't like the message, kill the messenger. You take your hatred out on that which is causing the conviction of the sin that you're not willing to repent of. So therefore, if you won't repent of it, you've got to put the source of that conviction in a bad light. And this is exactly why Jesus was despised and rejected by men. Every, all these evil things said about him that were not true. Okay. So therefore, if someone is a means of conviction in your life, and maybe someone has corrected you, and you're not willing to admit that, you know, I mean, let's say they're right, okay. And but you or or someone's you know corrected me, and I'm not willing to totally not willing to to admit that, okay. 
So what do I need to do? I need to blacken the corrector in my eyes and everyone else's. And then I'm excused for not listening to what they say. Because it's a boy. So this is how people behave often when they're threatened. And this is what sharing the sufferings of Jesus is. It's when we are despised and rejected. Have all sorts of slander said about us because people have been convicted somehow as a result of us, whatever way that could be, or any other questions. I'm talking about us because you know we're here. We're in, in, in any Christian's life, right? So if, 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 if you're the means of conviction in someone who is not going to repent and is going to fight tooth and nail, who are they going to fight tooth and nail against? The person who has been the cause of the conviction in their lives. Which is exactly what the Pharisees did against Jesus. So go, go to Proverbs. We're going to see quite a few verses in Proverbs. You can't beat Proverbs for good old practical <coughs> saying things the way it is. So let, let's, in the light of what we've said, get some of these verses. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 7 to 9. Whoever corrects a mocker invites insult. Whoever rebukes a wicked man incurs abuse. Do not rebuke a mocker or he will hate you. Rebuke a wise man, he'll love you. Instruct a wise man and he'll be wiser still. Teach a righteous man and he will add to his learning. Now here you see, often the problem is <coughs> you don't know until it's too late that someone's what Proverbs quaintly calls a mocker. <laughs> and of course the point is any one of us could become this at any time. This is the important thing to realise. We could fall into this sin. At any point, someone might correct me. And if I react wrongly and don't repent and feed that, then I could end up persecuting other Christians. You see the point? Hence these warnings in the Bible. Any of us could do it. So we've got to make sure we don't. But here's the point. Can you see? Correction is valid. We now have a situation where believers have done something that's quite valid and other believers are insulting them and hurling abuse at them. Is it the point? Because if you're not prepared to be honest and repent of whatever it is God's convicting you of, then you'll just want to turn on the people he's used to convict you. You see, and rubbish then. Because if you rubbish them in your own mind enough, you're excusing the fact that you're not listening to them. Because if they're so evil and sinful, how could, they, how could God possibly have anything to say to me through them? You see the principle. Go to chapter 18, Proverbs chapter 18. <clears throat> and verse 19. An offended brother is more unyielding than a fortified city. And disputes are like the barred gates of a citadel. Now you see the picture there? The, the hardness that you can come up against in people who will not repent of their sins. See, it says here, brother. So here, here is a brother. Oh, 
I'm offended. How dare you? It's you. That, that's what it's like. See? And they're like fortified city. You know, they're at war and they're not going to give in. They're not going to move. Yeah. And bang, you've got World War Three on your hand. Now, the same thing done to a, a, another believer, maybe a word of advice, or, or very often it's not even because of direct correction. I mean, in fellowship together, we osmose into each other's lives, don't we? Often, people get in this state, not because anyone's ever said anything directly to them, that we're going to see later on in the talk, some of the things that can set people up. And often, it's not, it's not because they've been corrected face to face. might be that, but, but, but the point is, whatever it is, they're offended, and they're going to fight tooth and nail. Go to chapter 22. Verse 10. Drive out the mocker and out goes strife. Quarrels and insults are ended. Because in point, when you get these offended Christians, what is it they cause? Strife Quarrels, insults. You see the point here? Because they've got to fight on. And it's the root of bitterness and it defiles the many. Because they need people on their side. You see. And of course, one of the beautiful things about when you're right with, with, with God, you, it's, it's, nice, it's nice to have people on, on your side. But if you're really at peace with God, you can stand on your own and be at peace and not need people on your side. And if the whole world was ranged against you, slandering you, if you're right with God, you do not need people on your side. It would be nice if people stood alongside, and it's right and proper that they do if you're not wrong. But the point is, you're at peace. But when you see Christians desperately getting people on their side, you're looking at the symptoms of being out of fellowship with God. Because everything we're seeing here is about being peace-loving, wanting to get on with people, not wanting to... Now, we saw, in so much as it depends upon you to live peaceably with all, there are times when you, you can't live peaceably with others because they won't let you. But the point is, you're not the one who's causing the problem. You see, they are. They're going to be saying that you are. But they are. Can you see the point here? So, drive out the mocker, and out goes strife, out goes quarrels, out go insults. And that is why, as we're going to see later on, that slanderers come in the list of believers who should be put out of the church. Yep. What is, what is the Bible's definition of a mocker? In Proverbs, simply what you've got is the characteristic of the people who um, are doing what's right are wise, okay, and people who, are, who aren't listening to wisdom of fools. Mm. And the wise man would accept correction and rebuke. But a mocker, now, you know, also it says that wine is a mocker. So the point is, in Hebrews, folly, sorry, in, in, in Proverbs, 
folly, mocker, is simply the characteristic of anyone who is not doing the right thing and is fighting against what God is doing. So, so it's simply the, you know, that, that way of describing it. So, you know, I mean, the fool has said in his heart there is no God. That's in Proverbs as well. So when you get fool or mocker, you've got people who aren't governed by God's wisdom and fighting against it. But when you get the wise men, they're, then, they're, you know, the wise, they're the ones who are willing to receive God's wisdom and, and, and live by it. Okay. So, in, in, in seeing these verses, are you getting the point? We're seeing the Bible warns us, don't get like that. Well, why, why would it warn us not to get like that if we couldn't possibly get like that? So given that any one of us, if we're not careful, could be like that, we're simply dealing with the fact that at any one time there are Christians who are like this. And so very often it's other Christians that they are venting their hatred and discontent on. So, so let's, let's move on to uh, the other question we asked. Did, did Paul... Did Paul ever suffer problems in his ministry from other Christians? Now, I mean, we know he did from other unbe- from unbelievers, of course he did. But did Paul have problems from other believers? All right. Now then, let's go to um, go to one Corinthians chapter. Sorry, two Corinthians chapter twelve. I've written the wrong the wrong verse down there. 2 Corinthians 12 and 11 to 13. One of the things that Paul experienced throughout his life, you know, and again, any, any commentary will cover this for you, no, no problem, is that, 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 that there were, were genuine believers, the circumcision party, they were genuine Christians, all right, and people with, with doctrinal bees in their bonnets, and literally, they would... When, when Paul started churches, they, when, when Paul moved on from, from those churches, they get in there to try and turn the churches against Paul. And to say, no, Paul's bringing you false teaching, this is the truth. And, you, know, you have to get circumcised, or whatever. Now, Paul, Paul suffered from this throughout his life. And of course, by definition, that was coming from believers, alright. So, look what he says here. He says to them, I've made a fool of myself. Because he, he, he's been saying about you know, how God has to humble him because of all the revelation he, he, said he had. He said, I've made a fool of myself, but you drove me to it. I ought to have been commended by you, for I am not in the least inferior to the super apostles, even though I'm nothing. The super apostles. Who were they? Well, they were the people coming in trying to turn the Corinthian church against Paul with lots of rumours and innuendo and lies. And here's Paul saying, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not inferior to these super apostles. I mean, the, the sarcasm is dripping from the pen, isn't it? And he says, the things that mark an apostle, signs, wonders, and miracles were done among you with great perseverance. How were you inferior to the other churches except that I was never a burden to you? Forgive me this wrong. Now, one of the things, if you trace it through, <clears throat> is that one tack that people tried to take with Paul was he's just after your money. So that was why what Paul did, he was able to do the tent making. It was lucrative, he could do it anywhere, could make good money from it. And actually, Paul was able, most of the time, not all of the time, 
But most of the time, his tent making, wherever he was, actually supported him and his team. 